Well, good morning, everybody. It's a Sunday morning as I sit in front of this screen and begin another session. I will teach this class and then go to the Finger Church and preach this morning. So there's a full day ahead of me. I hope that uh, you on this same particular day will be worshiping the Lord in one of the congregations somewhere near you. It's been an interesting experience speaking to a, a screen, looking into a camera as the session begins and then later on just being recorded. I am a preacher, I've been that way for 35 years now, and I'm accustomed to seeing responses from those who listen to me. I'm accustomed to, uh, if there is a puzzled look on somebody's face, being able to try and explain what I have just said, perhaps a little more in detail so that they could understand, or perhaps hearing uh, people uh, laugh or smile, uh, seeing them smile when I tell a joke. So what I'm going to do is, as I do these um, sessions with you, I'm just going to assume. I'm going to assume that whenever I tell a joke that you will laugh at it and whenever I say something profound you will uh, nod appreciatively at the profound nature of what I'd said and, and we'll make that assumption as we go on. We left the Apostle Paul in the city of Philippi, if you recall, and uh, there he had met a woman named Lydia. She was a seller of purple. She was a woman who uh, had taken the missionary party in. I suspect that we would be right to imagine a, a very large household with servants and uh, employees and that kind of thing. And so she was able to fairly easily take on this particular task. You might recall that in the city of Philippi that the trouble began when there was a woman, a young woman, who was uh, possessed by some kind of a demon, and she went up and down following Paul and Silas and crying out to the crowds that these men were representatives of the Most High God. Uh, sometimes commentators are puzzled over why the Apostle Paul finally stopped and spoke to her and cast the demon out. Uh, they wondered why he would do that if she was in fact saying something that was true and uh, that was certainly the case. Uh, here she was saying uh, that they were servants of the Most High God and she might be considered a great spokesperson. But I suspect that the best explanation for Paul's action would be simply to say that he felt compassion for her. This was a young woman not in her right mind. This is a young woman whose mind was not under her own control but under something else's control. And so Paul was simply taking an act of great compassion to this young woman. However, there were people who were making money off of her uh, soothsaying or uh, prophesying or whatever it was she was doing. And so apparently Paul and Silas had angered a very important business section of the city of Philippi. Uh, they were turned in. They were summarily uh, beaten uh, and thrown into the inner stocks, if you recall. That's where we pick up with a rather well-known saying in Acts 16 and verse 25, where Paul and Silas sang and prayed. Uh, one wonders uh, how many fellow prisoners had listened to new prisoners being dragged in and chained to the inner stocks of the prison and what those new prisoners might have typically done. I suspect the praises to a deity was not amongst those things. Uh, one would imagine perhaps curses or uh, why uh, did the gods put us in this position. Uh, the text says that the, uh, that the other prisoners were listening to them. I suppose you could... Uh, ask yourself um, what kind of an 
impression that made. Paul and Silas certainly were singing and praying for their own morale. Uh, they were certainly uh, building their own courage up. I don't think there's any question of that. But I think that uh, there's also a sense in which it was a tremendous witness to the other prisoners. Uh, Tertullian, an early church father, uh, had this to say about the incident. He said that the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. I like that idea because it seems to me that any time we worship, uh, we might be actually sitting in a pew in a church building uh, here on earth, but hopefully our hearts are in heaven when we express those words or we teach and admonish one another. Uh, you may be asking yourself, uh, uh, why is it that the other prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas that they sang? And the answer is obvious. They were a captive audience. I suppose that would be one of those points at which I assume uh, that you uh, laughed at what I'd said. Now, uh, Paul and Silas sang that night, and then there was an earthquake, as you recall, and then came an extraordinary moment. Into the ruins of the prison in Philippi came the Philippian jailer. Uh, he appears to have been a man of great integrity. The Bible says that he was about to take his own life. Uh, one supposes that he felt uh, as if he was somehow responsible for the escape of any of his prisoners, and so he would do the honorable thing rather than allow the, uh, um, the, his leadership, his uh, um, uh, higher-up superiors uh, to uh, execute him. He would go ahead and do that himself. Uh, that's when Paul Paul cries out and says, uh, uh, don't do yourself any harm. We are all here. That's extraordinary, too. I picture a whole prison full of uh, prisoners and none of them escaped or even apparently sought to escape. It must have been an interesting night. In Acts 16 and verse 30, uh, we uh, read this uh, remarkable statement by the Philippian jailer. Then he brought them out, that is, the jailer did, and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Uh, I don't know how many times uh, uh, it happens in a preacher or missionary's life when somebody comes up with that question. Uh, think about the great questions of the Bible. One thinks about Cain, who had uh, just killed his brother Abel, and God says, where is Abel your brother? And Cain's response was, am I my brother's keeper? Apparently Cain felt as if he was not responsible, and it should be obvious that he was not responsible for his brother. Uh, I, I think about the uh, rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to gain eternal life? That's a great question, it seems to me. And certainly this one is too. What must I do to be saved? Uh, what a great opportunity that must have been for the Apostle Paul. I can picture him smiling and saying, I'm glad you asked. Uh, in fact, um, I had some information. Uh, from that subject for you. And then perhaps he began to tell the story of Jesus Christ. What must I do to be saved, the Philippian jailer says, and, and the response in that instance was uh, what came from Paul. Uh, he taught the gospel and the man was baptized. The scenario that followed that, this is found in Acts 16 beginning with verse 35, is one where the city officials tried to ask Paul and Silas to leave. And here is one of those instances where the Apostle Paul stood up for his rights as a Roman citizen. Please note verse 35 of this passage. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these things to Paul, saying, The magistrates are sent to let you go. 
Um, therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. One of the things that we observe from this is that uh, it was the right of a Roman citizen to receive a fair trial. Uh, they had not received that. The magistrates had simply reacted when the accusations were made and made some assumptions and dragged these men into a place where they were beaten and thrown into prison. Uh, certainly a Roman citizen could be beaten and he could be thrown into prison, but first he would have to have been demonstrated to be guilty in a fair trial was the idea. Another thing that we observe here is that Silas also apparently was a Roman citizen. We do not know how he attained this status, uh, but this is in contrast apparently with Barnabas, uh, about whom it was never said he was a Roman citizen. The police, in verse 38, reported these things to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came out and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Uh, one almost imagines the, the phrase, asked them nicely to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I note with a little amusement that uh, they were asked to leave the city and Paul and, Bar uh, Paul and Silas uh, took their own good time. Uh, following through on that request. Uh, they went back and saw Lydia. They spoke to the, the congregation that was there and the like. Now, this is probably a good time to mention one of the features of the book of Acts uh, that you have probably heard of, the so-called we passages of Acts. Uh, as the Apostle Paul left Troas in the Macedonian call, uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of scholars have noted that the uh, personal pronouns switch from he, that would be Paul, or they, that would be Paul and his companions, to we. Uh, one assumes that that is Luke, who is included in that group. Luke would often be a, an eyewitness of the events of Paul's life. And so Luke follows him across the Aegean, and, and he goes into the city of Philippi. Uh, the events that transpire there are all events that he observes and watches. But then many people note that in chapter 17 and verse 1, the the pronoun switches back to they. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. It's a pretty good assumption, then, to suggest that uh, Luke remained in the city of Philippi. Uh, this is actually a practice of Paul's. He will leave uh, various of his protégés in various places. You may be aware, for instance, that in the city of Ephesus, uh, that that was where Timothy was left, according to the book of First, and First Timothy. Uh, Titus was left in the uh, island of Crete to carry out uh, a ministry there. We don't know when Paul was in Crete or if he ever was, but it seems like it was a practice for Paul to, to, to when he leaves a city, to ensure that somebody remains there to provide some leadership some guidance and some teaching. And so it's a fair assumption to say that Luke remained in Philippi. Uh, some have also noted that when Paul writes the book of Philippians, there is a genuine warmth and closeness that Paul expresses for that congregation. And in fact, uh, the uh, uh, congregation does not seem to be suffering from any uh, misconception or false doctrine or anything like that. And so uh, some have suggested that perhaps uh, Luke was a particularly effective minister in that particular congregation, uh, teaching them well. The only thing that Paul suggests in Philippians chapter 2 is that there was uh, some uh, division in the congregation and he makes that very eloquent appeal for them 
soon to uh, to uh, be united once again. So what we have in the next couple of chapters in the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul and his companions uh, starting at the very northern part of the land of Greece and moving steadily southwards. Uh, they will go through Thessalonica and Berea and the great urban center of Athens down into Corinth. Uh, and so what we're doing is we're looking at a sort of uh, progression as they move south uh, through the land of Greece, going from great urban center to great urban center. And what we see in this probably is uh, Paul's most significant work uh, between his work in Philippi down to Corinth and then across the Aegean again to Ephesus. Uh, this was the heart and soul of what Paul had done in his mission work. These were the great churches uh, that he established and built and developed down through the next few years. You can imagine this as being uh, something like somebody starting on the east coast of the United States and moving from, from Boston down to New York and from New York down to Washington, D.C. and the like, and, and, and in each great urban center establishing and building a congregation because Greece was in that day and age, uh, uh, the most civilized and the uh, most um, important part of the world, uh, except for, of course, the one city, Rome itself. So here in chapter 17, we pick up on uh, the next city. It is the city of Thessalonica. Uh, you might notice as we look at the map, um, the progression that's taking place in the far northern part of Thessalonica, of, um, uh, the country of Greece is Philippi, then you move south to Thessalonica about oh midway down the main uh, mainland of Greece, and that's going to be the next city that Paul works in. You might notice that uh, the image that I've given there of the Roman Forum that still exists there, you can see how they have actually dug into the earth to uh, make this stadium, uh, this amphitheater uh, more effective. You can see uh, that uh, behind uh, where the stage is that there would be rooms where perhaps the actors would uh, change clothes or, or, or masks or whatever for their next, the next part of their play. Um, Thessalonica. From Philippi, Paul and his party travel south to Thessalonica. And it's interesting to note some of the terminology that's used here. Uh, chapter 17 and verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom, we read, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. As we've already noted, Paul usually went into a synagogue if there was one there to, uh, to enter. It says he reasoned with them. Uh, in fact, the Greek verb is dialegomai. You can even hear the English word dialogue there and so what I'm picturing is a degree of uh, give and take uh, where Paul perhaps uh, responds to questions that they have, uh, goes into more detail as somebody has, has a question. I suppose that this session would be less like a sermon and more like a Bible class uh, where the teacher might pause and say well does anybody have any questions and, and the various people might have begun to uh, ask him to explain some things. So it says he reads with them from the scriptures and note that the basis of his teaching was not his own education or ideas but the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I 
I proclaim to you is the Christ. What I am fascinated with in that verse is uh, the uh, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and die. You might recall that many Jews were hoping for a Messiah. They were hoping for a, a David-like heroic figure. They were hoping for a military and political leader who would perhaps throw off the Roman yoke and make the Jewish people free once again. Now, Jesus certainly wasn't like that. And when you consider that the Jesus story ended with an execution on a cross, that certainly would be uh, uh, very different from what the Jewish people were hoping the Messiah would be. So what Paul does is he goes back into the Old Testament and points out the the Bible passages that suggest that, that the Messiah would indeed suffer and uh, perhaps even die. Uh, I would think of passages such as the one in Isaiah 53 uh, that speaks about he was wounded for our transgressions and the chastisement that was upon him was ours. That kind of a passage where Paul would say, you see here, uh, this is not a heroic uh, uh, David-like figure in the political sense, though there is certainly a great deal of heroism in uh, suffering vicariously for the sins of the world. It was a different kind. It would not be a general standing on top of a conquest um, or something like that. It would be another kind altogether. Now, in Thessalonica, uh, he dialogues then, he reasons with them, uh, and, and my suggestion at this point is that Christianity is a reasonable religion. It's one where we can discuss its truths uh, and we can defend its um, certainty. Uh, we can look at uh, uh, facts uh, that uh, makes sense. Uh, I suspect that a lot of people have the mistaken idea that Christianity is all on faith. Uh, certainly Christianity is a faith and certainly Christianity is something that where we have faith and we develop and, and deepen and grow our faith but it is not just all faith it is a, a, a belief where we can look at evidence one thinks of Hebrews 11 verse 1 that suggests that faith is the substance of things not seen the evidence of things you see and so Christianity has great substance to it now there are three things uh, now, now um, Thessalonica is not a place that Paul spends a great deal of time in. If you read on down in Acts chapter 17, we read that um, Paul was there for three weeks in the synagogue. Uh, notice in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did, a many, as did many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I love that phrase. It's often been pointed out that this was another left-handed compliment uh, to the early Christians. Uh, the reputation of Christianity had, had spread before Paul. And as they come into the city of Thessalonica, uh, these individuals could say, these men have turned the world upside down. And it appears that the crowd and the authorities would nod and say, yes, we've heard of that. We've heard of how this new religion has um, uh, shaken up town after town and city after city. Uh, so these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them all, they say, and they, all acting, and, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. It's interesting how they latched on to a statement that Christians would have made, our king is Caesar, uh, yet ignored the obvious fact that Jesus was not a, a leader who uh, had political ambition or military ambition. He was a different kind of king altogether. I would like to make the observation that many times when you hear 
hear somebody express a criticism of the church or a criticism of a leader in the church that it is a criticism that is uh, drawn from uh, s some twisted facts uh, some ideas that uh, warped ideas about what Christianity represents or about what had actually happened. Verse 8 says, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, we read. Now, Paul was only in the city of uh, Thessalonica for three weeks, and, one, one, and most scholars think that what happened is he, he left that city and he went to subsequent cities and he was concerned that he had not spent long enough in Thessalonica to ground the Christians, to develop them, to uh, tell them the whole uh, of the Christian life that they needed to know. And so he sends back very quickly the two letters we know as First and Second Thessalonians. And what lies behind both of these letters is Paul's writing back and saying, look, the, I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that you turned from a, a uh, from idols to a living God and I'm thrilled that you turned your lives over to Jesus but there's still more things I need to teach and so that's what he proceeds to do in those two letters um, uh, in maybe that Paul went back to Thessalonica at another date but we never know uh, we, we are never told that in the book of Acts Acts 17 and verse 10 then describes Paul coming into the, the next city down on the road. It's named Berea. When they arrived in Berea, they went into the Jewish synagogue, we read. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. One of the things that we are already uh, getting an idea of as Paul moves from city to city is that there were varying reactions to the gospel message. Some people are just more uh, receptive to the gospel than others. Some are more thoughtful and they listen to what is said and they weigh what is said and perhaps even do some study as this particular passage suggests uh, so that they can find out uh, the truth of Christianity. Uh, Christianity, the gospel message, will stand up to scrutiny. Uh, those who study it and those who listen to it, those who examine the claims of Christianity will find that there is a great deal of evidence for its truth. Now I suggested in the PowerPoint slides that there were three things that characterized the Bereans' Bible study. Notice, first of all, that they, were, they eagerly received the word. Uh, the text of Scripture says that when they heard the word of God preached, they were eager listeners. Uh, uh, I don't know if you had uh, given much thought to what kind of a listener you are. Um, listening is, it seems to me, the most underrated skill in the communication process. Uh, when you think about any relationship, it could be a friendship, it could be a romance, it could be a marriage, uh, it could be uh, relationships in a church, but everybody's happy to speak. The question is, how good a listener are you? Uh, if you think about the uh, various professions that depend on the ability to listen, and to listen well, uh, you might think in terms of a therapist uh, who listens to a person as he explains his problems. Uh, uh, that would be a very important thing for a therapist to do, is to listen carefully and accurately to what is being said. Now, notice here in this transaction, when the preaching is done, the listening is eagerly uh, done. Uh, so many audiences, it seems to me, when I preach, have put on this uh, mask of indifference, uh, this you won't move me to 
today uh, kind of expression on their face, um, uh, boredom or distraction or something like that. And it seems to me that, that when it comes to Christians particularly, we should learn to be good hearers of the word. I think about James who says, be, uh, be good hearers of the, uh, of the word, be, be doers of the word, not just hearers. That would define a good listener, it seems to me, is somebody who listens and then acts on it. So they were eagerly receiving the word. Then it says they examined the scriptures. I'm impressed with that word examine. Uh, it seems to me that that tells us a lot about them. This was not a cursory glance at scripture. This was not just spending two or three minutes reading over a verse and then putting our Bibles aside. Uh, an examination, if you consider, for instance, a, a doctor uh, examining a person to see if that person is healthy. You can see the doctor looking at the eyes and, and, and looking at the lungs and listening to the heart and um, uh, working the joints, the knees and all of that kind of thing, uh, looking throughout the body of that person, examining everything about that person to make sure that he's in good health. Uh, the same thing is true of, the, of a study of the Bible. Uh, we get a greater reward if we study and examine the scripture uh, in a more deep manner. Now the third thing they did was that they did this habitually. They did it daily, the text says. Here were a group of Jewish people who listened to Paul and listened to him eagerly and studied the scriptures. I suspect that what we have here is, is a, a great case study in how to grow as a Christian. Uh, many people have suggested that this passage is, is saying that even if the Apostle Paul preaches that we should check him out. I'm not sure that that's exactly what, what was happening. What they were doing was they were discovering. They were reading the scriptures, and, and uh, it says, to see if these things were so. Can you imagine the Jewish people saying, really? Is that where the Messiah was going to come? Is this what he was going to be like? And they would look at the scriptures, and they would say, yes, that is what the text says. Why had I not seen that before? And you can see them eagerly then beginning to learn anew about the Messiah named Jesus. Now, if you're following along in the PowerPoints at this stage, you will see I have, again, the map of modern Greece. And if you would drop your eyes down to, um, oh, the southeastern part of the land of Greece, but not quite to the area that we know uh, as Achaia, uh, which is the sort of almost, uh, uh, it's the neck of land, the isthmus, that is almost an island, but not quite because it's connecting there. You might see a dot there that uh, indicates the city of Athens. This is the next place that the Apostle Paul went to. It appears that Paul went down there by himself, uh, that um, the uh, missionary party remained perhaps in Berea for a little longer. So Paul comes down to uh, this iconic city, the city of Athens. Here was indeed one of the world's historic places. Uh, think about so many of the uh, great Greek philosophers and thinkers and historians. Uh, if you think about uh, the, the likes of Pythagoras and Aristotle and Socrates and uh, science and mathematics and philosophy and religion and all of that, uh, this is frequently centered around the one city of Athens. Athens was the greatest city of the ancient world, perhaps uh, an, uh, only rivaled in some sense by Rome itself, uh, Rome not being the intellectual intellectual center that Athens was, but Rome being a more powerful city in the end. Uh, Athens would be the great university city of the world, and Oxford or Cambridge, you might suggest. Uh, it was a city that had, a, had and has a great deal of priceless archaeological uh, uh, artifacts in it. Uh, it would be a cultured city. It would be a city with, with art, uh, not just sculpture and paintings, uh, but uh, uh, rhetoric and poetry and drama and 
and music and all these kinds of things. I have an image on the PowerPoint slides of the Parthenon. Uh, if, as you gaze at that, I know it's not easy to do so, but, but note, first of all, the fact that it's set high up on a hill on the, Acro uh, on the, on, on the Acropolis behind the city of Athens. I uh, mis uh, was anticipating something else. Uh, notice also uh, that there are uh, reinforced uh, walls below the Parthenon, uh, holding it up, and then you can see the pillars um, all the way around. Uh, architects and art artists will say that this was one of the most beautiful buildings, the most well-proportioned buildings of ancient times. It might be a little hard to do, but you might try to imagine what this building would have looked like in its original state uh, when it was new. Uh, can you picture, uh, not a ruined building perhaps, but can you picture the whitewash on the pillars? Can you imagine it gleaming in the sunlight? Perhaps you can see a tile roof on top of that uh, red color or red-brown tile color. Can you picture on the peak of the roof, um, but above the uh, on the front of the building and above the pillars, some kind of a mural, an image of uh, Greek gods or something along that line? It must have been a stunning sight for ancient people as they walked by. Uh, the next image has the Temple of Zeus, although it is not nearly so well uh, um, preserved as the other buildings. You can tell by the height of the pillars uh, that this was a very impressive building, a very tall building. And, and so uh, Zeus, of course, the, uh, uh, the greatest of the Greek gods according to mythology, and this is where the Athenians sort of worshipped him. And then you can drop your eye down to the theater on the Acropolis. Uh, of the various theaters and amphitheaters I've shown you, uh, this would be so far the most impressive. Uh, look how deep and how steep the stairs are on this. Uh, look at the arches uh, along the side of the amphitheater. One assumes that those arches would have actually extended all the way around. Uh, you can see that the top two tiers are broken uh, on the right of the picture. On the left would be more like what they were originally. But again, you can imagine this amphitheater with, uh, uh, with plaster on the uh, arches and um, colors uh, uh, included. You can imagine uh, the uh, uh, Greek crowds pouring in and settling down to uh, watch some great Greek drama. Here indeed was a city that had a great deal to commend itself. Uh, the next image has a picture of the Acropolis at dark and you can see the Parthenon on the one side and you can see uh, the outside of the amphitheater on the other. Again, this was an extraordinary location. And then the uh, image below that is Mars Hill or the Areophagus. Uh, you perhaps are wondering about the two differences. Uh, Mars would be from the Latin and Areophagus would be from the Greek, um, meaning the same thing. Uh, so uh, that is probably where uh, the Apostle Paul spoke to this crowd. Now I'd like to pause and make some observations about some things that uh, might have been seen in the city of Athens and, and what the Christian response to that would be. You see, in our day and age, and I hope that perhaps you uh, young people will indeed have the opportunity to go to Athens and to see the very things that I've been speaking about. Uh, I would hope you could marvel at the ingenuity of the Greeks and at the beauty of, of what they had built. Uh, I hope that you'll be able to see in your mind's eye, perhaps, uh, an ancient 
ancient city of Greece, uh, with, not with ruins, but with uh, everything in working order, all the buildings and all the roads and the commerce and the people flowing in and out in that ancient time. That will help you to appreciate your biblical stories about this better. Uh, you can imagine going through and seeing all of the, uh, the beautiful sculptures to the various gods. And in our 21st century, we might say to ourselves, this is very beautiful, uh, this is gorgeous, this is uh, an amazing group of people, the ancient Greeks, and that would be true. Uh, but perhaps I could bring up a question of uh, uh, the need for the gospel even to reach a place like Athens or even ancient Greece. Why would Christianity benefit such cultured and advanced people as the Greeks were, you might ask, or someone might ask. Uh, there is what somebody has called a sort of national geographic view of um, various people around the world. What I mean is this. I enjoy National Geographic. I enjoy watching that channel. Uh, sometimes I subscribe to the magazine itself. Uh, there's a great deal of wonderful, fascinating information in it. But frequently, National Geographic will uh, study a tribal group uh, in a remote area. You can imagine uh, an Indian tribe in the Amazon jungle or a Bedouin tribe in the Sahara Desert. And, and they would follow these people and observe their practices and their language and, and their culture and, and um, the the underlying message behind it would be, uh, aren't these people amazing? Aren't they wonderful? Uh, is, isn't it interesting uh, about their, their uh, culture and their dress and, and their weddings and, and their funerals and, and all the different things that they do? And, and there is a sense in which we're all fascinated with it, but the subtext beneath some of these would be, and we would really hate for Western culture to come in and ruin these people's wonderful existence. And there's a subtext even beyond that sometimes. We would also hate for Christianity to come in and ruin these wonderful people's lives. Uh, and we think about local traditional religion, uh, the gods the, that they worship, uh, and the manner in which that they worship their gods. And that sometimes is a subtext to it. But I'd like to remind us that, uh, the, that, that there is no such thing as a sweet and innocent culture. There is no such thing as a culture that's all sweetness and light. I know this from my background in Southern Africa, that, that African tribes as they live and work without the influence of Jesus Christ are living in a society that's selfish and cruel and harsh and, uh, well, without Christ, not having the grace and the mercy and the thoughtfulness uh, that, that comes from a society that has been infused with Jesus Christ. I'm quite aware, of course, that many times we who are Christians are flawed still, and we make mistakes still, but I'm suggesting that any culture that has had some influence of Jesus Christ is a culture that's benefited from it. Even those who do not specifically name Jesus as their Christ, as their Messiah, still their society made a difference. And if you were to drive through the cities and towns of this country, the United States, and you were to see uh, hospitals, for instance, and note that so many of those great hospitals were begun and are still funded even by, by people of Christian belief, when you think about so many of the uh, great organizations that do relief work all around the world, uh, again, many of them are based with religion, uh, with Christianity. When you think about the nation of the United States and its generosity, and there's no question that it is, uh, they, they are the first on any uh, scene when a disaster occurs. America's generosity, I don't think there's any question, uh, could be traced back to its Christian presuppositions. And I think that uh, there, there is just a, a misconception that these tribes and these peoples 
uh, uh, might have some good things in their culture, but they also have some things that are, are the result of sin in that culture, and they need the sweet message of Jesus to begin to uh, live the way that humans have the capacity to live when they have the Lord in their heart. And it seems to me that that's part of this. Now, the Apostle Paul walking through the city of Athens uh, did not, as it turns out, admire their great artwork and, and the marvels of Greek culture. Uh, in fact, he had a very different reaction to what was, what was seen. Notice with me, if you would, Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is, the missionary group in Athens, his spirit was provoked with him, in him as he saw the city was full of idols. You see, what we see as great sculpture, he would have understood in his day uh, that they would be uh, idols, that they would be uh, uh, characters that the people of the city would worship. Uh, no longer in our day and age do people worship those sculptures, and so we can simply see them as works of art. So he reasoned in the synagogue, we read, with the Jews, and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Uh, he gets attention, as we note. In verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, so uh, here he is in this great cultured city, in this university city, if you uh, would like to look at it that way. And he's causing a stir. Uh, people are beginning to talk. Notice the language here. What does this babbler have to say? In fact, the word used for babbler is the base word for barbarian. Uh, of course, the Athenians would have been uh, very proud of their heritage, would have been very proud of their intellectual uh, capacities. And so uh, they might suggest that other people and other nations would have uh, inferior um, understandings and inferior gods to the ones that they served. Uh, I had put in the PowerPoint slides what the know-it-alls didn't know. Uh, what the know-it-alls didn't know. See, uh, these were people who were proud of their own learning, and yet there was something they did not know because they had set up that, uh, uh, that, that altar to the unknown God. We read in verse 19, And when they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, all the, uh, what these things mean. And then it adds, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Uh, I gather from that statement that Luke makes uh, that um, the Athenians were not necessarily eager to adopt the Christian lifestyle that Paul seemed to be suggesting, but they, uh, they were just merely academic. Uh, what they wanted to do is to find out a new thing, and then they could sit and discuss it between each other. It wouldn't change their lives necessarily. It would just be something that they would discuss uh, the strengths and weaknesses of it. Um, here would be heaven's answers to the most profound questions of life, uh, is my suggestion. Um, life's great questions. Uh, uh, are not uh, what team will win the next NBA championship. Life's great questions do not lie in who will be the next president of the United States. Uh, that's not life's great questions. And in fact, what I suggested, if you are observing the PowerPoint at this point, is that there are three great questions that Paul addresses as he stands before the Athenians and expresses 
these ideas to them. Uh, I suggest that number one, the great, first great question is, where did I come from? And the answer to that is, God made me. The second great question is, why am I here? That is, why am I here on earth? Why am I living? And it says, to seek God. And then the third great question is, where am I going? And Paul answers that by saying, to face the Lord in the judgment. Now, what I would like to do in the next few minutes is to read the speech that Paul made to the crowd on the Areopagus. I hope that if you go to the city of Athens yourself in the next several months, that you will be able to stand at this very spot. Uh, there is a plaque, in fact, two plaques, uh, that have this particular speech. One is in English and one is in Greek. Uh, and I hope that somebody will have the forethought uh, to stand and say, uh, why doesn't everybody gather around and I'll read this great speech because it's an extraordinary encounter between Paul, the uh, premier exponent of Christianity in his day, uh, bringing this new religion uh, and, and the Athenians gathered around the intellectual hierarchy of the ancient world and this great clash of ideas between the Christian gospel, the Christian message, and the ancient gods and the ancient philosophies of the Greek people. So we read in verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image found, formed in the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now what I'd like to observe as we think about this uh, uh, initial clash between ancient Greek mythology and culture and intellectual endeavor and Christianity is to suggest that although it may not have seemed like a, a great movement at first, the response of the Athenians was less than enthusiastic. Uh, there were some people who mocked Paul's message. There were some who said, well, we'd like to think about this a bit and hear you again. But it wasn't an overwhelming reaction. It wasn't uh, as if 3,000 people were baptized that day or something like that. So what we have there is Paul perhaps leaving and saying, well, uh, that wasn't very uh, much fun or that wasn't very effective. But in fact, it was the first clash between the dominant culture of Paul's day 
and Christianity. There would be many more, and perhaps as you could already surmise, already surmise in the end, Christianity won that great intellectual battle. By the, the, the year 300, uh, when Christianity becomes legal, it is Christianity that characterizes the uh, Roman Empire and not paganism. It is Christianity that characterizes intellectual thought and not great Greek um, uh, uh, classical philosophy or something along that line. Here's the first skirmish and Paul is the advanced troop, uh, the Marines that um, storms a beach, intellectually speaking, and there will be many more that follow. And of course, Paul himself will um, uh, storm many more beaches, but it seems to me that this first clash is a foretaste of what will come. Here Paul stands before these uh, professors, if you please. You can imagine uh, a gospel preacher standing in front of uh, the whole theology department of uh, Yale University and saying, well, I have some things to say to you. So going back to the three great questions that the Apostle Paul deals with here. Number one, where did I come from? And I suggest that the answer is that God made us. In Acts 17 verses 24 to 26, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, the God who made the world, he uses an interesting word, cosmos. We uh, have in our English language uh, um, uh, terms uh, uh, that, that fit right in with that. Uh, we think in terms of the cosmos as, as all of the stars and the, the galaxies um, out there in the sky. The God who made the cosmos and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, I, I don't think there's any question that a God who could make the vast universe, uh, a God who had such power, would certainly be Lord of it. The, we're talking about uh, a, a power that is without any comparison to anything that we might be acquainted with in our uh, day and age, even today. Uh, no nuclear power uh, uh, explosion could, no, no nuclear explosion could uh, show such a power as God made. So what kind of deity is this unknown God? Uh, that uh, Paul had begun with. Uh, where would we find him? Paul seems to ask. And if we did find him, what would he be like? Paul begins by declaring that this God is the God of the cosmos. Uh, this God is greater than creation. Uh, we did not make God. God made us. When humans make an idol, they are in a way honoring themselves by honoring what they made, its beauty, uh, its craftsmanship, that kind of thing. Um, I was thinking as I read through that uh, description of Paul's speech to the Athenians, a great missionary in Churches of Christ, his name was J.M. McCaleb, was one of the first who went out to the country of Japan. It was back in the 1880s. And he describes the first time that he went up to a, 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 a temple, uh, a Shinto temple in the country of Japan. And the priests came out and spoke to him. And he said he was a missionary uh, expressing the Christian cause. And they said, well, why don't you speak to our congregation? He remembered uh, being uh, impressed with how great a responsibility he had. Here would be a crowd of several hundred devotees of uh, idols. And he would stand in front of the temple on the steps that led down to it, and he'd look out across this crowd and he thought, what do I say? And I guess I could ask you that question for just a moment. What would you say? If you were standing in front of the crowd who had no concept of the Bible, no concept of Old or New Testament, no concept of a Moses or a Joshua or a Jesus or a Paul, where would you begin? 
uh, and it seems to me uh, that J.M. McCaleb was probably on the right track because he thought about Paul's speech to the Athenians on, on the Areopagus and he said to himself, what better passage and what better sermon could I begin with than that? And so he read the passage that we had just looked at and as he read it, then he began to make his observations about the God that he wished to present, the same God that Paul presented, the same characteristics that Paul suggested that God had and ended with the same call to repentance that Paul uh, had given to the Athenians. Uh, he says that his reaction was much like the city of Athens, not overly enthusiastic, but he said it was a great privilege to be the first person uh, to deliver the gospel message in any form to that particular crowd. Now, when we think about what Paul was saying in this passage, uh, we, we start with the idea that God made us. And we're impressed about the fact that, that, that uh, humans might make statues, humans might make great works of art, uh, we might build an awesome temple, uh, we might build a magnificent church building or a cathedral, uh, we, we make a nation like the United States, uh, we might build a business, uh, we might build a beautiful house, uh, the money that we have might buy a luxury car, but humanity always gets this worshipping thing upside down it seems to me, uh, where we worship and serve what we made. Uh, for a real God, you need to worship the one that made you. And I think that's what Paul is saying to these Athenians. Uh, he adds, and this God does not live in temples built by hands. I think it's important for us to recognize that God can be worshipped in any place, in any part of the world. I recognize that being from a mission field, uh, a church building is not nearly as big a deal to me as it might be to other people. Uh, I have worshipped on a rock under a tree many, many times. I worshipped in a school classroom. I, I worshipped in many, many different places that were perhaps temporary places of worship. Uh, it doesn't matter where you worship. It matters who you worship and how you worship him. That's the great difference. In fact, I can even hear Jesus speaking to the woman at the well and saying uh, uh, that, that um, the, the time is coming when we will worship neither on this mountain, that would be Mount Gerizim outside the town of Sychar, nor in Jerusalem, uh, but that we would worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, I see that my time is almost up, so I think that this is probably a good place to pause. I appreciate you listening to me. I hope this is a good day of worship and service for you, as I hope it will be for me. Thank you, and God bless you.